This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. We've all been buying the hand sanitizer and soap for the last several months. It's a good plan to fight the virus. Researchers in Japan find the coronavirus can linger on human skin much longer than flu viruses, maybe even nine hours compared to just a couple for influenza. We'll look into this research and we'll look into our hygiene. Hmm. We're all looking, by the way, for a quick and cheap coronavirus test. Researchers at UCLA say they just developed one. Also a new poll that shows parents are not fans of all the remote learning. And medical journals and publications, usually they you know, shy away from politics. Until now, we'll tell you which one and why. We begin with washing the hands to keep the virus away. Dr. Dean Bloomberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist, UC Davis Health. Doctor, how'd they do this research on uh, skin and the coronavirus, considering you probably shouldn't just be putting the virus on a bunch of people's hands and seeing what happens? I think that's exactly an important point. And so it would be unethical, really, to do that. Um, We wouldn't want to risk transmission. And so what they did was they used um, autopsy samples of skin, and they figured out a kind of an ingenious way to keep the skin um, alive by putting it in a, in a culture well and bathing it in nutrient solution and then inoculating it and then sampling it to see how long the virus lasted. Well, and it lasted for how long? So it, it looked like it lasted for about nine hours um, on the skin, but likely in a concentration that might be infectious to others, likely only for, uh, for maybe about a half an hour. Okay, so that teaches me what? To wash my hands and make sure I'm doing it within a half an hour if I've touched things that other people are touching? I I think the risk of that first half hour is like a a maximal worst-case scenario. We know that the primary route of transmission is via the respiratory route. And so you'd have to meet a lot of different um, criteria to transmit it by skin-to-skin transmission. It would have to be an infectious droplet that gets on your skin You'd have to touch it while it was still infectious, and then you'd have to, after you touched it and you have it on your finger, then you'd have to put your finger in your eyes, your nose, your mouth um, while it was still infectious to transmit. And so we don't believe that all those conditions are met very commonly, and that's, that's why it's not primarily transmitted by, by touch. So does this study, as a doctor yourself, does this study change your behavior in any way? No, this wouldn't change my behavior. It's still the, the, the primary things that are important are wearing a mask when you're out and about in public areas and otherwise social distancing. Those are the primary things. People should wash their hands and keep surfaces clean, too. I wouldn't, I w- I wouldn't you know, be down on that. I think that's great. But that's, that's for transmission of primarily other pathogens like staph and, and, and other viruses. How long does other stuff last on our skin? You know, they're all different. A lot of things are normally on our skin all the time, even if you have good hygiene and you take regular showers and baths. So it's very common for people to have bacteria such as Staph aureus um, on their skin. About 20 to 25 percent of people um, always have that. I mean, are we too paranoid about this stuff? I mean, long before there were hand sanitizers and probably even before there was soap, I mean, people got along quite well or none of us would be here. 
Well, they did, but um, you know, people died sooner too. So I think we have come a long way with hygiene. It's prevented, you know, having clean drinking water, having um, excellent standards of hygiene, do decrease transmission of a lot of different diseases and do result in longer life. On the flipping that around, should we all have been washing our hands more than we were before this? Do you think? I mean, not going crazy, but like think how many times you went through the day and you were touching a whole bunch of things and then getting food, and then you know some people weren't washing their hands before they ate lunch. Well, um, you know, I, I'll just confess, some of us have always been a little bit more paranoid about those kind of things, yeah. and you know, especially touching high-touch surfaces, so things like the handles of, sho- of shopping carts, um, door handles, um, faucets in public restrooms. You know, the, the, those are the kind of things that I, I carry around a little bottle of hand sanitizer, and even before this started, I was, I was constantly using it. Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist, UC Davis Health. Doctor, thanks. UCLA scientists, they've developed a cheap and easy coronavirus test. No swabs stuck up your nose. You just give a saliva sample to them, and they promise to have the results in 12 to 24 hours. It's a much better alternative. Oh, yes. I'm not, I don't want to shove anything up my nose. <laughs> the goal at first is to test the entire UCLA population twice a week, starting soon. But the rest of us, well, we have access at some point. Eliazar Eskin is chair of the UCLA Department of Computational Medicine, part of the team that worked on the test, and he talked about it with KCBS's Stan Bunger. Our technology has the same advantage of pools in the sense that you combine many samples together in order to be able to run them faster. But because, as you mentioned, we add a molecular barcode, which you can imagine is something like a sticker to each sample that when we do the analysis and we look at all the results, we can actually figure out which out of all the samples that we mix together actually has coronavirus. This sounds like magic. So does this rely on gene sequencing technology? It sounds like a few things have been brought to the table here. Yeah, exactly. You know, the technology really is possible because we've had 20 years of tremendous advances in ability to sequence genomes. And the coronavirus is actually a piece of RNA. It's an RNA virus. And so we're leveraging the fact that there's been tremendous advantage in in genomic technologies directly to this problem of being able to measure whether samples have coronavirus in them very efficiently. How many could you combine in one run? So that's a great question. So we, it really depends on the sequencer that you use. Um, we're going to be setting up a lab. We're setting up a lab right now at UCLA that will be able to do about 10,000 samples in one run. But there's other sequencers that are available that can even do up to 100,000. So it's at that point, it's really not about the machine to measure the samples. It's really about just getting the samples into the building will be the bottleneck. And so the result, as reliable as what we're being told is the gold standard, the nasal swab test? Yes, that's the real advantage of this technology versus other inexpensive technologies is that this is measuring exactly the same thing and just as accurate as the standard test. So, in fact, in some ways, it's even it can be even more accurate. So, from what you said, your previous answer, we've sort of moved the challenge here from the getting the sample to the running it to the actual logistics. Yes, yes. And we are setting up at UCLA a plan that we want to provide testing to our entire campus community twice a week. And that'll be a good model for how we can try to solve the logistical problems. And if that's successful, we hope that other groups elsewhere will replicate it and provide low-cost testing. Because everyone says we need more testing in, in our society. We actually have 
a lot of testing capacity. The problem is it's too expensive. Organizations can't afford to pay $100 a test to test everyone twice a week. They can't, they'd rather, they can't come back. But if there's $10, uh, $10 uh, per test cost, then that's affordable for people to test regularly enough to reopen our society. And that number is something you're, you're confident you can do with this system? Our, in principle, the system, that's how much it'll take. It, it, the cost goes down the, more, the higher the volume. So at large volumes of tens of thousands of tests per day, that's how much it's going to cost. So when we start with smaller volumes, it'll cost a little bit more. But, you know, our, we're, we're in the business of developing a technology that we think will have an impact. So we set this up in a way that, you know, the ultimate goal is to bring the cost down to that level. Dr. Eliezer Eskin, he's the chair of the Department of Computational Medicine at UCLA. This new sequencing technology called SwabSeq has gotten FDA uh, emergency use authorization. Coming up after this short break, many kids are still learning at home and parents are getting tired of it. If you think kids aren't happy with remote learning, you should talk to their parents. A new L.A. Times poll finds a majority of voters say California's schools are not prepared to offer high-quality distance learning. Four out of five say the biggest challenge is keeping the kids interested in studying. They also say it's hard for the kids to work on their own. Bree Lopez, parent of a sixth grader and seventh grader, both doing remote distance learning, the Las Virginis School District here in the L.A. area. Bree, tell us about this living hell you've been going through. Oh, where do I begin? Um... You know, it's, you know, what we thought would be maybe a month or two, obviously. All parents have now been, you know, six plus months and now two months into, you know, the new school year. And there, there's just nothing I can say that's easy about it um, for parents. I'm a working parent and um, for the kids. Did it get easier then the spring, because over the summer, everybody was promising, okay, we're going to have the platform. We're working the kinks out. It's going to be okay. Is it any better, or is it just as bad as well, it was? I mean, if, if I can say something very important, I the teachers are amazing. And, um, you know, even administration, I do think it's, it is better in the sense of a little more uh, cohesiveness. Um, but you know, my kids are both in middle school. I've got a sixth grader who's just starting and a seventh grader. And, you know, they've now changed the district change to block scheduling. And so the kids are almost in school, um, you know, a class for two hours and they have three of those a day. It's like an hour and 45 minutes. And there's just nothing good about it. And in addition, I don't think it's, it's, it's hard to say that it's, better, but yes, more cohesive with the the Zoom situation. As long as you don't lose your signal or your Zoom class, that happens constantly. Do you think your kids are learning? Um, I would say it's maybe 25% learning. And my seventh grader is just that he's a kid that literally counts down the days in summer to go back to school because he loves school so much. And he just said to me last Friday, uh, we were all sitting around talking. He's like, you know, when people ask you how school, he's like, I can't even say anything good because it sucks all all the way around. So, and those, 
<laughs> for a kid who work. likes school, I mean, he must be frustrated that he doesn't get what he wants. Yeah, yeah. And then my sixth grader, she has an IEP, so she's uh, mostly in special ed classes. So that's a whole nother can of worms. And again, these special ed teachers are doing a fan- they're doing as good as they can. But but I do feel like she's suffering the most. And yet, uh, Bree, if tomorrow they were mm-hmm. to say the schools are open, uh, mm-hmm. would you feel comfortable sending your kids back? I would I I would say yes, I would try. I don't know if comfortable is the right word. I mean, I do think that they're going to take, you know, huge precautions, but I feel like their mental health at this point is more important than you know, getting sick. I I hope that doesn't sound awful, but I'm just saying there's this mental health situation that nobody's really dealing with. And uh, I would send them back. I would at least try. Have you racked your brain about what could be done to make it better? Because it seems like at least, you know, with, with your son, he's motivated. He wants to learn, but right. he, he, he's not being given what he needs to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I've gone over and over, you know, them cohorting. I do know in Glendale Unified School District, I don't believe it's in middle school, but I do believe, no, maybe it is. Um, they're cohorting, and I'm really, really um, hopeful that our district does something like that soon to get the kids back, because I think that can be done. I mean, my my friend's been doing it. He has four girls, and they're doing much better. Free Lopez, best of luck. Parent of a sixth and seventh grader, both doing the remote learning. Lost Virgin is Unified School District. Bree, thanks. Medical journals and other science publications, they tend to avoid politics. They just stick to the facts. But that is now changing because of the pandemic. New England Journal of Medicine has come out with a prescription for us. Dr. Eric Rubin, editor-in-chief of the journal. Doctor, what are you saying? I don't think of this as politics. I really think of this as medicine. Thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are dying right now. And we're worried about saving lives. And how do you save lives? In this case, we think that the problem is that we've had poor leadership. And that poor leadership has led to tens of thousands of excess deaths. Well, I hear what you're saying, Dr. all due respect, whether you you think of it as wading into politics or not. In fact, you have. Uh, And in fact, at the very end of the editorial, you say we should not abet them, them meaning national leadership, and enable the deaths of thousands more Americans by allowing them to keep their jobs. In other words, vote them out of office. Um, so, and, and I hear what you're saying about the reasons for it, but the journal, as you know, I don't think has ever taken this kind of, and I am going to say it, political stand before. Uh, do you think that this crisis then clearly has risen to the level that it was necessary? Yeah, I think you're right. I think extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. And this is way beyond anything that we've seen um, in terms of the mismanagement of a public health crisis. So it's hard not to say something. And you do it on the basis of, and we don't want to put words in your mouth, but the issue here is around facts, not around opinion. Yes, thank you. That, 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 that's exactly what I would have said. I think there we know a lot about how to control disease, and a lot of places have been successful in controlling disease. 
That includes uh, some other countries um, and it includes some states that have done a pretty good job. Um, but there are a lot of states that haven't. There are a lot of localities that haven't. Um, and in part, and I think in large part, that's a leadership problem. We know what to do and we're not doing it. Why did you elect uh, to not name names? Uh, I mean, you're clearly talking about the Trump administration to a large degree. Uh, why not just say it instead of being coy? Well, maybe it was a little coy, but I think there's blame to go around. Um, there are leadership issues in lots of places. Remember, public health is largely a state function, um, but states can't do it without federal help. So I think there are a lot of people who should lose their jobs, um, not just the the administration, but yes, the administration, I think, should be voted out. This is a question that you could spend an hour on, but let's try and boil it down to a few points. How did we get sure. to where we are? I mean, there is a mistrust of science that is out there in some circles, and it's a, it's a very much of a, a don't tell me what to do. I, I'm going to go back to the issue of politics versus fact. Um, there are lots of things that are just simply true. Um, masks, social distancing, simple measures like that, quarantine, isolation, they all work. They're not really political questions. When you try to turn facts into politics, though, uh, I think you get the sorts of a recipe for the kind of problems we have right now. Um, people don't have confidence in things that are absolutely true. And um, we have difficulty implementing them. And we don't really have the, the leadership that wants to implement them right now. If we don't do that, we're going to continue to have increases in cases like we have right now. I'm curious about two things. Uh, I don't know how the editorial process uh, works at the uh, journal. Was there uh, any none, some internal dissent to this editorial? And what kind of reaction have you gotten? So it's a good question. Um, we drafted something and asked the editors if they wanted to sign on to it, and everyone did. So there really wasn't any dissent. I think there are 34 or 35 people who signed on to the editorial, which is essentially all of our editorial staff. Um, so that part wasn't hard. I think the reaction is, I, I think, predictably mixed. Uh, we've gotten uh, a lot of supportive uh, feedback, and we've gotten a, several people who said um, that uh, they're offended that we've moved into politics. Um, and and um, I think this is not something we wanted to do. It, it, again, we would not do this if we're in, in any other time. We've never done it before, and I hope it'll be another 200 years before we do it again. Uh, it's just hard to sit there and watch the kind of mismanagement that we've seen, the kind of incompetence and reckless incompetence that we've seen. It it's, it's, it's goes far beyond other situations we've seen. How do you think the collective we... How do you think we fare over the fall and the winter as we continue to go through this? It's really up to us. Um, it, it depends on how we behave. It's certainly much more difficult in, uh, in cooler climates as people go indoors and transmission is, increased, is, is likely to be increased indoors. Um, the way to counteract that is to take a lot of the measures that I've already mentioned. They're much more difficult when you're indoors. 
but I, I hope that we see how necessary that becomes because it could get worse. Dr. Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Rubin, thanks. Biotech company Regeneron is trying to capitalize on giving its experimental antibody drug to President Trump. It's asked the FDA for emergency approval. Now, Regeneron says it would make the doses available for free to the American public. Doses for about 50,000 patients are available, and Regeneron claims it expects to have enough doses for 300,000 people in the coming months. The president, you may recall, praised the treatment as an, I'm quoting now, unbelievable drug and claimed it was a cure, though Regeneron has never said that. The antibody therapy is a combination of two monoclonal antibodies designed to block the virus from infecting cells. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.